Hi, Molly. Hi, Shane. Okay, so this is this is different. So folks who listen regularly, Vicky, our my intrepid co-host, is currently on a long vacation in the way scheduling works. We just we had to power through without her. So Molly McGid, our producer of this episode, is also gonna be my co-host, and she uh gets to deal with me asking silly questions. So silly question for the week is Molly. What was your biggest fear as a kid? Yeah, so this is a hard question for me because I was a very anxious little kid. So th- there are a lot of fears uh, for, for me to list, like definitely strangers. I think like the dark, just a classic tornadoes, wolves was a big one. Um, oh my goodness. But one I like to talk about is like possibly my weirdest fear, which is one I still have, is a fear of ants. Ants, like the like the insect ants. Yeah, ants. I mean, like I know, you know, they're small. They only cause problems at, at picnics. But like they have the power of hive intelligence. And I remember reading they can carry up to like 50 times their weight. So like if they all decided to get together, they could just carry me away. That is a big fear of mine. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I I just I love love might be a strong word, but I'm fascinated by this image of just this horde of ants just basically you body surfing yeah. on a horde of That that is my fear. Um you oh know cuz they're gosh. intelligent and if they form an enemy of me, they can take me away. Oh my gosh, that is that is wild. That is that is so much better than mine, which I was thinking about, which is literally just like talking to any adult. When I was when I was a child, I just had this debilitating fear of talking to anyone. And while it's not a fear of ants, I feel like it has it has lived on until today. Because if you ask me <laughs> to call someone on a telephone, mm-hmm. I would rather get carried away by ants. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I I support that. <laughs> Science is fascinating, but don't just take my word for it. Join us as we hear stories from scientists for everyone. I'm Shane Hanlon. And I'm Vicki Thompson. And this is Third Pod from the Sun. All right. So, so what, do, what do childhood fears have to do with our episode today? Right. So this is related to our guest today, Heather Holbach. So my name is Heather Holbach. I am on the research faculty at Florida State University, but I'm also a Cooperative Institute employee with NOAA through the Northern Gulf Institute, which Florida State is a member of. And that is to work with uh, NOAA's lab down in Miami, the Atlantic Oceanographic and Meteorological Laboratory. Heather's childhood fear drove her to become a meteorologist and study hurricanes. Well, like a lot of meteorologists, my interests started at a young age. However, my path is a little different than a lot of people that go into hurricanes. So most people experience some sort of hurricane as a a kid that sparked the interest. For me, I grew up in Wisconsin, so we don't really get hurricanes there. (laughs) But for me, it was tornadoes. I was terrified of them and, and severe thunderstorms as a kid. So I started watching the Weather Channel a lot. And I learned about flying into hurricanes. And so I decided 
you know, that sounded really interesting and really neat. And that's what I wanted to do. So that's so interesting that as a kid, you were afraid of tornadoes. And then your next move was like, I'm going to go fly through a hurricane. Like tornadoes, are, they're concerning, but hurricanes, I want to be inside one. Like that is, that's a, that's a big shift to me, but I'm impressed because as a kid, I was also um, I lived in, in Colorado and I was also like very afraid of all the tornado drills. And I don't think that would be like my leap in logic, but um, I'm glad it worked out for you. Yeah, it might have had something to do with that. My dad was a pilot growing up, so I grew up in planes and I love roller coasters. So I think, you know, once I overcame my fear of weather and became fascinated with it, it was just kind of a natural progression for me somehow. That's great. I think it's awesome to like turn a fear into actually actually, I'm just really interested in this phenomenon, so might as well go study it. Yeah, that, that sounds like a really fascinating path. I mean, but but did I, did I hear right that Heather flies into hurricanes? Yeah, yeah, that's right. As part of her research, she flies on hurricane hunter planes. Oh my gosh, that's incredible. What, what exactly is Heather studying when she goes on these flights? So Heather's research is primarily about surface winds on the ocean. I'll let her explain more about what that means. The atmosphere is three-dimensional. So uh, we have wind at all different heights in the atmosphere. So I focus on the wind that's closest to the surface. So in a hurricane, it's primarily you know going to be over the ocean, uh, right near that interface with the o- ocean and the atmosphere. And then, you know, you can also have wind that we experience over land on a day-to-day basis. So whatever is closest to the ground level, that's where I focus. Okay. And how does that surface wind, like what are the important aspects of it that would you be looking for in a hurricane? Well, since most people live near the surface or on the surface and you know, buildings and infrastructure and all that is on the surface. We really want to understand how strong the winds are. Yeah, that's really interesting because while most people are kind of evacuating and fleeing the hurricane, this plane and you are going straight into it. What does that feel like? It's a mix of emotions, definitely. You know, as a scientist, there's a lot of fascination in it for me. I being able to see what I'm studying in, you know, real time firsthand lets me learn a lot about what I'm doing and things I wouldn't learn without being out there and seeing it with my own eyes. But when we have a landfall, a, a storm that's a potential landfall threat, that's where the emotions really start to turn because you know what's coming. You're out there seeing it before everybody that it's going to impact and you know how bad it could be. So it really gets interesting uh, on the emotion side, but it's also really makes you feel good knowing that you're able to get out there and help collect the data that the people need to be able to prepare. Yep, that makes sense. So, okay, I want to get to the the planes because I'm super interested in, in that aspect of your work. What do these planes look like? Like, how do they differ from, you know, a commercial plane that's that most people might have been on before? Well, size wise, you know, they're 
a lot bigger than most people might think. They're probably similar to like a Boeing 737, you know, a pretty typical sized commercial plane that a lot of people fly on. But the big difference is that most people are used to flying on jet engine aircraft, whereas these planes are turboprop. So they have propellers. They're a lot noisier because of that. (laughs) But they also have four engines. And that's for the aircraft that are meant to penetrate the storm. NOAA also has a jet that's meant to fly up higher. And that's kind of like a a business jet. So what a lot of, um, you know, private people might fly on. Um, We have one of those with NOAA that's meant to survey just the environment around the storm primarily and up high. Whereas the P-3, which is the turboprop plane I was mentioning, and the C-130s that the Air Force have, those are meant to fly lower and slower and go through the worst of the weather. You know, in addition to that sort of communication work, you must have a lot of scientific instruments and technology on board. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what instruments are there and specifically which ones you work with? Yeah, so one of the things that make the NOAA planes unique is that we have the ability to fly research instruments in addition to instruments that we call operational, which are required to be on the aircraft by the National Hurricane Center. And so on the NOAA and Air Force planes, those operational instruments are the dropsons, which are expendable instruments or like little cardboard tubes that contain instruments inside of it that we drop out of the plane. They have a little parachute on them that slows them and stabilizes them as they fall towards the ocean surface. And they collect data the whole way to the ocean surface and send it back to the plane. So one of the roles that we play as a scientist on the plane is quality controlling that data. So um, we usually have one scientist that's in charge of doing that. And then once it's quality controlled, they send it off the plane. The other instrument that's operational is the instrument that I primarily work with called the Step Frequency Microwave Radiometer, or SFMR for short, or you might hear it referred to as the SMURF. Um, And that's on the Air Force and NOAA planes as well. And so that instrument is primarily used to collect surface wind observations, but also rain rate beneath the aircraft. And this is one of the primary tools that the Hurricane Center uses to determine how strong a hurricane is and how far out, how far out from the center the strongest winds go. So my primary research right now is focused on making sure we fully understand how that instrument works and seeing if there's areas to improve the observations that we're getting from it. Since over the last few years, we've been able to sample a lot stronger storms since we've had more of them. And so it's brought to light some potential issues that might need to be corrected with the algorithm or the process for retrieving wind speeds from that instrument. So those are the, the operational instruments on both the NOAA and Air Force planes. But one of the biggest instruments that make the NOAA planes unique are the radars that we have. So... Both the Air Force and NOAA have nose radars that they use to navigate through the storm safely. But the NOAA planes also have two additional radars. There's one that's mounted on the underside of the plane that scans 
horizontally, much like a weather radar you might look at over the U.S. And then the other one is called the tail Doppler radar or TDR. And so that one scans vertically and basically takes a, a CAT scan of the storm as we fly through it. So we're getting a three-dimensional view of the rain and wind as we fly through the storm. And that one, that instrument is being transitioned to operations right now, at least on the NOAA side. And it's been shown to have a really huge impact on the models, uh, making sure that the storm looks right when it, at the beginning of the model runs. And in doing so, it has a big impact on improving the forecast. So our planes have been tasked operationally a lot more recently because of that instrument and how important it is. And we're hoping to be able to get a version of it that'll work on the C-130s in the future. In addition, you know, we have a couple other instruments that will rotate on and off that are focused on, you know, various ways of measuring winds and humidity and temperature. One of them that's really exciting for me is called IRAP. It's an instrument that can get a swath of wind information beneath the aircraft and really high resolution. So it can connect the observations we get at flight level all the way down to the surface and tell us a lot more of the details of what's going on. As you're speaking, I'm just thinking that your plane and, uh, you know, the plane you fly on and the technology just sounds like James Bond, like you guys are the coolest. Oh my, I could I could totally see this research being in a Bond film. Like, oh, what would it be? think um so maybe no time to fly or uh or or live and let fly yeah fly another day maybe you know i mean replacing the word die with the word fly that just makes most of them work oh my gosh this is great so yeah you so for the next five bond movies it's it's you and me we'll we'll just play on the next handful of them got it covered doing it right now yeah exactly like who who needs professional producers and directors and all of that we can just do it but so so now we uh, we know a little bit more about these very cool planes, but what's it actually like to fly on them? I would also just love to hear about what a typical flight is like. So could you tell me kind of from takeoff to landing, like what is it like? Well, we usually start the whole process for a mission about two hours before takeoff. We'll start by having a, a pre-flight briefing where we meet with the pilots, the navigator, the flight director, who is also a meteorologist, and the other science crew, where we all get together and discuss the plan for the flight, what our objectives are, what our pattern is, uh, is planned to be, where we're planning to drop certain instruments, if there's any research modules we're planning to fly, just so we're all on the same page and understand uh, what obstacles we might face, how much time we're going to have, because it depends on how far away the storm is from wherever we're taking off and landing. Then about a half an hour before, half hour to an hour before the flight, we'll head out to the plane where we'll start to set up our computers, make sure uh, we have everything we need ready to go before takeoff. And then about 30 minutes before, we'll, all, we'll gather with the entire crew. So this time, it'll include our flight engineers, our data technicians, 
and any of the other crew that are on the plane that weren't at the pre-flight briefing will all gather and go over the plan again to make sure we all understand what's ahead of us so we can have the most successful mission. And we also will talk about safety at that point, make sure everybody is fresh and knows what the plans are for safety if anything were to happen. And people get assigned roles for what they should be doing in the event that certain things happen. After that, everybody gets to their stations and the, they start up the plane and we uh, take off. And after that, we usually have anywhere from an hour to three hours until we reach the storm. So in that time, it's kind of like a, you know, get time to relax before you're in the heat of things. Um, make sure all of the data systems are working properly, that we have, you know, all the communications working properly. And then once we get to the storm, that's when things start to get really busy and we start to execute that, that plan that we had talked about. But one of the things that I usually do, I'm usually flying as a lead project scientist. My job is to look for opportunities for collecting interesting data that we might not have planned for based on what we're seeing. Um, but also, if we encounter any issues, such as, you know, not being able to fly it into a certain location that we had planned or something like that, being able to work with the flight crew through the flight director to adjust and adapt as we are encountering different things throughout the flight. So you really have to be on your toes. And, and we always say we need to stay ahead of the plane when we're up there so that we can make those decisions quickly and have it a successful mission. And then throughout the flight, we're collecting data. We'll keep an eye on it, make sure everything's working properly, uh, make sure it's getting off the plane properly and communicating whatever we need to. We also have to make sure because we're focused on getting data into a certain window for the models that are running, that all of the data is getting off the plane by the time it needs to get off to get into those different model runs. And then once we land, uh, we all gather at the back of the plane again and discuss how the mission went, what if there were any issues that we encountered, if there was anything that we should keep in mind for the next flight. And then uh, after about 10 to 12 hours, we get to go home and get some sleep before we do it again. Wow, that is, I, unlike you, do not like roller coasters or turbulence. So being on like a 10 to 12 hour flight, that's quite bumpy, uh, I imagine, would be very difficult. And I'm really curious is the eye of the storm, like, what is that like? You're probably one of a handful of people who've been inside the eye of a storm. So could you describe that? There's really nothing like it. The eye wall is typically where you get the most turbulence in the storm. And so you go from this region of really heavy rain, you know, streaking across your window and potentially a, a good bit of turbulence. Not all storms are very turbulent, but a lot of the stronger ones are, or storms that are changing strength tend to be. But you go from this really bumpy ride to you all of a sudden, there's no clouds out your window. It clears up and it's so smooth. And it happens in a split second. It is 
the most crazy experience, but it also helps you understand what's happening if you're on the surface, how quickly that changes and how you need to be really careful if you are on the ground in the eye, because when you go back out the other way, that change happens just as fast. You go from super smooth, sunny, potentially skies, clear skies to howling winds in a matter of minutes. So that's one of the things we always try to remind people is you need to be really careful because those winds will pick up really quickly and can surprise you. It also sounds super interesting how just from the fact that your lab is a plane, you have to think about, oh, well, what if the plane can't can't get there? Like you're not the scientist on the ground who can kind of overcome a lot of those obstacles. Um, you know, you're you're actually in the vehicle that's taking the measurements. So anything that it does like impacts you, that that must be a really interesting experience. Yeah, it's definitely a learning curve when you first start flying how to make sure that you can keep up with the plane and stay ahead of it and adapt and adjust as you need to. And especially if there if the flight is turbulent, you know, it makes it harder to look at a computer screen. <laughs> so uh, you definitely learn when to take advantage of the smooth times and, you know, how to overcome, you know, some of those obstacles of turbulence. What was that first flight that you gone on like? Well, of course, I was really excited because it was something I'd always wanted to do. But I don't think I fully appreciated how much I was going to learn by going on that flight. Um, since I was first starting out, you know, on my project working with the SFMR as a student. And the way that the SFMR works is it's measuring, it's converting a measurement of how much white water is on the surface, which forms from like breaking waves or the spray from breaking waves blowing across the ocean surface. And that's related to wind speed and how strong the wind is. And so actually going out there and seeing the ocean surface with my own eyes, how quickly it can change and how crazy it can get was just so interesting to me and really eye-opening and really helped me understand what it was that I was working on. And as a student, that was invaluable. And so I didn't expect that to happen on that flight. I thought I was just going to, you know, enjoy some turbulence or whatever and, you know, get to see some cool clouds. I didn't really think about that aspect of it. So that really surprised me. And I'm so thankful for that experience because it really helped me understand what I was doing and what I was working on a lot better. Yeah, I'd love to hear if you have any specific examples of when you know, before going in the plane, you didn't really understand something. And afterwards you were like, wow, okay, that makes so much more sense. Do you have any of those specific examples? Yeah. I mean, one of the most recent I actually had was on my last flight last year in Hurricane Ian. One of the things we've been trying to understand better with the SFMR is how it's operating in really heavy rain. And I had an experience where we were flying through the eyewall and it was raining really heavy, but the winds 
we're also where we are at the point in the storm where the winds should have been the highest. And all of a sudden I saw the winds drop off on the SFMR and I was really confused. I was like, this shouldn't be happening. (laughs) Why is this happening? And that helped me realize, okay, there definitely is a problem here with this instrument that I need to understand better and fix. And so seeing that firsthand, experiencing it, seeing what it looked like out my window, having the full context of what was going on with the storm was really enlightening and something that I hadn't fully appreciated up until that point, even though people had pointed out the potential for that problem in the past. That seems like a big check mark in the fieldwork column. I mean, this this series we're doing right now is on fieldwork, and we've gotten to learn how important it can be for researchers to get the ability to see and interact with their subject or or whatever they're interacting with, even when it's as extreme as a hurricane. Absolutely. And, you know, Heather's firsthand experience with hurricanes helps to inform not only the response on the ground, but also the field of meteorology in general. Given that my focus is on observing surface winds and hurricanes, uh, that has a lot of implications for many different aspects of meteorology. It's used to, you know, understand how strong the hurricanes are, which then goes into what's called the best track database that many researchers use to study various different things. So it's kind of like a a cascading effect. If we don't have the correct observations, it has impacts all the way through the forecast to the research. So for me, it's really important that I can improve those observations since it has that kind of compounding effect throughout the field. So we know that climate change is making hurricanes more intense. Has that reflected in your work, either in terms of, you know, being on the plane or planning the mission or, or where you're able to go? Yeah, so it, it's really hard um, to attribute specific things that we see occur every season to climate change. But over the last, you know, five or so years, we've definitely had a lot more major hurricanes that we've been flying. And that's given us opportunities to learn more about what's happening in those storms that hopefully we would be able to apply if it does turn out that climate change is going to lead to more intense storms, whether that be in the way we observe them or in the hazards that they produce. So that's one of the main things that we've been doing to try and understand these storms better and so that we can forecast them better. And whatever we learn can also be applied in climate models to help them improve their forecasts within the climate models. We are trying to broaden our reach and try and fly storms for, further to the east before they get to uh, the islands in the Caribbean and the U.S. Because what we're seeing is the sooner you get data in the models, the better the forecasts are. So All of these kind of, you know, come together in the main goal of trying to understand these storms better so that we can understand what the future might hold with them.
Is there any flight in particular that comes to mind as the most extreme or either like physically or like mentally? Is there anything that comes to mind for you? One of the flights that I wasn't prepared for the most was during Hurricane Lorenzo uh, back in 2019. It was a, a, a storm out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Um, it wasn't a threat to land, uh, mostly just a, a marine threat. But there was a, a ship that got caught in the eye of it when it was a, a Category 4, and it actually sank. But we were the only aircraft in range that could get out there to search for it and any survivors. And so we were planning this big research mission, and all of a sudden we got changed to having to fly a search and rescue mission. And that really hit home the seriousness of these storms and the importance of what we do, collecting that data so that people have it, even over the ocean, so that we can prevent something like this from happening. So uh, we had two flights where we flew to try and find any survivors. They did end up rescuing, I believe, four survivors between the help we were able to provide and the cargo ships in the region. So while several lives were lost in it, you know, there was at least some good that came out of what we were able to do for that. So that was just a really different uh, side to what it is that we do and what we are capable of doing until the Coast Guard was able to come in and relieve us. I was getting goosebumps just hearing you talk about that. That must have been, yeah, a really kind of in-your-face moment of this is about, you know, the people and how we report about the storm directly impacts, you know, people on land and in the sea. How... Yeah, like how does that make you feel when, are you reminded of that when you're flying on the plane or is it something that kind of just in these glimpses you realize, oh yeah, like our work is is really important for for people's lives? Yeah, that's really one of the biggest motivating factors for me as to why I continue to do this. Knowing that what we're doing out there is having an immediate and direct impact on helping people prepare themselves to potentially save their lives and reduce the potential for loss of infrastructure and property. That's really the biggest motivating factor for me. And I feel so fortunate that I'm able to contribute to that mission and so thankful that I've been able to continue doing it as long as I have. Wow, that really hit home. I mean, it sounds both challenging and really rewarding to be involved in this work. Yeah, and talking with Heather, it's really easy to get caught up in the details of field work, about the planes and extreme flights. But at the end of the day, it is all about saving lives, either directly or through the information they collect on board. Oh, absolutely. This episode really brings a new meaning to the phrase, you've got your head in the clouds. Oh, Molly, Vicky would be so proud of you. Are you trying to steal my role as a pun master? Wait, I'm sorry. Did you just call yourself the pun master? (laughs) (laughs) 
would also be very proud of you for checking me on my ridiculousness. Uh, so with that, I'm just going to run away and say that is all from Third Pod from the Sun. Uh, I want to thank you, Molly, for bringing in this story and to Heather for sharing her work with us. This episode was produced by Molly with audio engineering from Colin Warren and artwork by Jay Steiner. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on the podcast. Please rate and review us. You can find new episodes on your favorite podcasting app or at thirdpodfromthesun.com. Thanks all. We'll see you next week. All right. Yeah, that'll do. Ants. Wow. That's, that's. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not I'm not one to say anything, but yeah, that's well, that's a pretty recently, specific one. Yeah, recently I moved, well, not that recently, a few months ago, and um, my partner's old, like, garage where we stored some of my stuff, it was infested with ants, Ooh. and so I made very sure not to, like, take any food and, and leave it in there, but it turns out it was summertime, and they were just starving for water, and so they oh. infested... My, I had one of those like Brita filters and like a, also my French press and they infested both of those just looking for water. But we, you know, we didn't know. So I was unpacking and I was like, oh, you know, it'd be nice after, after moving, like a nice cold glass of filtered water. And I (laughs) I took the water filter up to the sink and it was just crawling with ants. And I felt like, (laughs) yeah, it was just my nightmares. So, um. (laughs) <laughs> oh my gosh this is like hitchcockian almost it's yeah. it's your version of birds it except is. it's ants <laughs> oh my god that's even worse that's so terrible yeah well i i uh i i'm sorry that happened to you it's okay uh, thankfully we yeah. like purged our house of ants so so far there's been no sign of them <laughs>